This is episode number 297, Closing the Gender Gap in Sports Research with Emily Krauss, MD, and Megan Roach, MD. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. When we talk about low energy availability, when we talk about the female athlete triad and relative energy deficiency in sport, there's a lot of arrows that you can draw to mental health and they're bi-directional. They're, they're feeding into each other in multiple different ways. And I think for every athlete, again, I'm going to hold up my it depends flashcard. It's so different. Like what is driving low energy availability might be different for every athlete. Like as Emily mentioned, sometimes it's totally inadvertent and athletes don't know it, but I think for athletes that are struggling with it, it's about ideally working with a counselor or a therapist to untangle like what are the underlying reasons that they might be more prone to experiencing these thoughts or what are even like some of the cultural reasons within sport. There are lots of ways to be better in our lives every day and nutrition is one of the many buckets that you can fill. Paying attention to what you eat and also paying attention to what supplements you choose to take can make a big difference in how you feel. Today's podcast partner is Athletic Greens and their supplement AG1. I personally like AG1 because it's a really easy way to check all the boxes to make sure that you're getting all the vitamins, minerals, superfoods, and probiotics, and also adaptogens that you might want to have to keep your day going and to feel your best. AG1 has over 75 high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb, and they have been looking at different iterations of this over the last decade as this company has been evolving and coming out with better and better products. AG1 is actually a powder. You can get it in travel packs or you can get it in a subscription form. And you mix it in water and you just drink it. And a lot of people like drinking it in the morning. I prefer taking something like this after my bike rides. My favorite part about AG1 is the adaptogens in it and the access to it because a lot of times you'll be taking different adaptogens and you have to remember to take all of them. So with AG1, you don't have to remember anything except just to take it once per day. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Vitamin D is really key in immune system function. A lot of people are deficient in vitamin D, and it's really important to be able to get this because we want to have a strong immune system, especially these days. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Sonia. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Sonia to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And that brings me to our next podcast sponsor, Inside Tracker. I just mentioned vitamin D and how a lot of people are deficient in vitamin D. Inside Tracker is an incredibly innovative company that allows you to get behind the wheel of your own health. So all you have to do is get your blood drawn. You can go to many, many labs that they have available in the U.S. And they also have people that could come to your house in Canada. I have somebody come to my house to draw my blood and they check over 40 biomarkers. There are so many different things that are involved in our health and performance. And vitamin D is one of those things. So if you're wondering if you're deficient in vitamin D, Inside Tracker can check that. But they can also check things like your hormone levels like your C-reactive proteins, which is related to the amount of inflammation in your body. There are lipid profiles. There's just the sky is the limit with the things that you can be looking for. And the thing that I love about Inside Tracker is that they use science-backed data to recommend dietary and lifestyle changes that you can make in order to improve upon these. So it's not only about supplementation. It's about how you can make a holistic approach to getting better with your health. 
Right now, Inside Tracker is offering 25% off all of their tests. You can go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to check it out. I highly recommend doing it at least once, but preferably more than once, because then you can see if the changes that you're making in your life are actually working to improve some of these biomarkers. I'm really excited to get my next Inside Tracker test, especially in postpartum health, to have a good baseline because things like training at a very high level and breastfeeding and sleep deprivation and working, all of those things can take a toll on your body. So just even knowing where your baseline is can be massively impactful and also empowering so that you can make changes in your health. So again, go to InsideTracker.com slash Sonia and check it out. So I'm really excited about this week's podcast. Emily Krauss and Megan Roach are two women who I am very inspired by, and they are making waves in many different areas, but especially in the field of research and sports. Emily Krauss is a medical doctor and the Stanford Female Athlete Science and Translational Research Program Director, and that program is called FASTER. It's F-A-S-T-R if you want to look it up. And lead researcher Megan Roach, MD, who is also a PhD candidate in epidemiology and podcast host of the SWAP podcast. The FASTER program seeks to help close the gender gap in sports science research with an emphasis on early identification and interventions to prevent injury and identify ways to optimize performance in female athletes. A lot of exercise physiology research out there isn't based on female athletes. It's based on male athletes. And then women are supposed to just take this information and hope that it applies to them. So I'm really excited about the work that they're doing. And the program hopes to inspire female athletes to learn more about their bodies and embrace what makes them strong and unique. Through proper education surrounding fueling, recovery, mental health, and more, they encourage the development of lifelong athletes. Dr. Krauss is a clinical assistant professor at Stanford Children's Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center. She specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation sports medicine. She is involved in several research projects, including the Healthy Runner Project, a multi-center prospective interventional study focused on bone stress injury prevention in collegiate, middle, and long-distance runners. Dr. Krauss also spends time performing gait analysis at the Stanford Run Safe Injury Prevention Program and serves as a medical advisor for the Adaptive Sports Injury Prevention Program at the Palo Alto VA. She has completed seven marathons, including the Boston Marathon, twice, and one 50K ultramarathon. You'll also see her on a bike a bunch, especially in California. Dr. Megan Roach has a medical degree from Stanford University and, as I mentioned, a PhD candidate in epidemiology and population health at Stanford, focusing on bone health in athletes and the genetic predictors of sports injury. Dr. Roach is a postdoc research fellow at the Stanford Center on Longevity and is helping launch Stanford's Lifestyle Medicine Initiative. She's been on the show before with her husband, David Roach, and their coaching company, and I highly encourage you to listen to that. It's called Finding Your Strong, and it is linked up in the show notes. She is a five-time national trail running champion, a North American mountain running champion, and a six-time member of Team USA. So between her MD, her PhD, and all of her running accolades, she has done quite a lot in her life. She is a co-author of the book, The Happy Runner, and co-founder of Some Work, All Play, The Swap Podcast, and coaching group that is centered around finding long-term fulfillment in the process of running. In this episode, you'll learn a lot, but you'll hear a lot about low energy availability, bone health, proper fueling, and so much more. You'll also hear how low energy availability applies to men because you often hear about the, the female athlete triad or reds, and we don't often hear how it applies to men. We also talked about how sex hormones affect bone health. So if you don't eat properly, that affects your sex hormones, and that also affects your bone health. We talked about what proper fueling actually looks like and how mental health impacts low energy availability. 
We also talked about the genetic predictors of sports injury, and I found that really fascinating as well. Make sure you check out the show notes to learn more about the FASTER program. Also, make sure that you check out the podcast I mentioned, Finding Your Strong with Megan and David Roach, because I think you'll really enjoy that. If there is something that you would love to learn about on this podcast, I'm always open to feedback and to new topics to cover because this podcast is something that I get to use as a learning tool for myself too. And I love hearing from you, my listener. If you haven't gone ahead and hit that subscribe button, please do so because that helps the show find other people to help them along their journey as well. And if you're enjoying it, don't forget to share the show with your friends. It's so, so helpful and so appreciated whenever you share it or whenever you leave us reviews or comments. If you didn't know, we are also on Spotify. I know a lot of people listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, but you can also listen on Spotify or even on my website at sanyalooney.com slash podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you go to sanyalooney.com slash newsletter where you can sign up for my newsletter that comes out every single Monday. I spend a lot of time researching a topic mostly in the realm of your inner life, your mindset, psychology, productivity, things like that to help you find a new level of potential in yourself. Again, you can get there at sanyalooney.com slash newsletter and join thousands of other people in reading this newsletter. All right, so let's get into this episode with these incredible women. Emily and Megan, I don't know. You guys are so accomplished. I'm like, do I call you doctor? Like, what, what do I call you? Like, there's MDs and PhDs and medical degrees and all kinds of and uh, multi-time trail running national championships. There's just all kinds of amazing women power on this podcast right now. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, Emily and Megan is great. That's how we roll in meetings, and just so excited to get to chat with you, Sonia. I feel like talking about women's athletics and female athletes with you, you've just been crushing in the athletic world and just, I don't know, bringing a lot of light on your podcast. And so I feel like I've been excited about this conversation for weeks. So thank you for doing this with us. Yes. It's an honor to be on, on Sonia. And sometimes I do call Megan the boss. So you can, you can call her that if you, if you want. (laughs) All right. So the first voice was the boss. That's Megan. And the second voice is Emily. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So I'm really excited today to talk about bone injuries and to talk about low energy availability and diet and women and also men and, you know, trans women, like all kinds of awesome things to talk about today. So first of all, I guess, how did Megan, you and Emily, how did you guys find each other and start working together? I love this story. And actually, I probably tell this story. Emily might be sick of it by now because I tell it at a lot of different meetings when we're first presenting. But about seven or eight years ago now, which which feels like a long time, I stumbled into a musculoskeletal clinic in the Bay Area, and Emily was working as a preceptor there. And I was a med student, hungry for information and for learning more. And Emily was just so great. She t- took me under her wing. She was like very just like teaching me the information, teaching me the ways. And then we connected up for research after. And the rest is history. Just really grateful for Emily's mentorship and all of her support along the way. Yeah. One of our first meetings was actually on a run around Stanford campus. It's like the quintessential, like two athletes, people interested in sports medicine, going on a run, nerding out, talking about different research ideas and different career directions. And it's been really great to see Megan. I was in fellowship at the time and now I'm, I'm practicing sports medicine. Megan was in med school at the time and she's now um, getting her PhD in epidemiology. So it's just really fun to see how our journeys have taken us and almost kept intertwining throughout throughout the whole process. And I mean, I learn a lot from Megan. She's um, so hardworking and I feel like we, we have a good synergy when we work together on projects. Yeah. Both of you seem to be 
I don't know the right word, but just amazing at building community amongst female athletes. Like just what I know of both of you and just what I see online too. It just, you're both so encouraging and so inspiring in so many different ways to women and you bring women together and you build them up. And it's just amazing to see that. Thank you. I feel like that's the, I don't know if we could compile like wisdom. I feel like our, we're just really going for that idea of like making things fun and hearing that feedback. I feel like for us is like the best feedback that we could get. So thank you for that. But I think as we have gone through this research process, we realized how fun it is to do the research together. Like these topics, like understanding female athlete physiology is truly beautiful and it's cool and inspiring what female athletes can do. And I think we've realized that as researchers and also realized that like far too often the language isn't always centered around that. And so that's been a big push of how we communicate. And I think female athletes and coaches and parents are really clamoring for information in that way. And so when we launched faster, which I'm sure we'll talk about coming up, that was a big part of it. And we were really inspired to see athletes just respond to like the, the fun nature of those conversations and, you know, talking about this in a way that breaks it down and is inspiring for young female athletes. Yeah. I feel like there's such an intersection between really understanding your body well. And I think as athletes, we're just, we're hungry for information and data. And sometimes it's really overwhelming to know where to look. And so we go to Google, we go to blogs, we go to just other people's or other, other women's personal experiences with a, a certain injury or a certain process like pregnancy and getting, getting back to sport. And I think sometimes it can be really hard to navigate kind of what has um, the science and the evidence behind that. And what is a little bit more like a personal experience that could have science and evidence behind it. And so I think even through like our, our peers and our community, we've learned, oh gosh, there's so many gaps and um, it's kind of reinforces and inspires us to keep moving forward and pushing forward with a lot of our, our research goals and um, kind of future visions. I guess my next question is kind of where to start because I read in, there's an outside article that was written about you guys and your program faster. And it said that women accounted for only 3% of study participants in sports performance studies. And there's so many misconceptions about generalizing all of these studies on women. And there's so many different areas we could go. So where do you like to start whenever you start talking about this? Yeah, I think we like to start just acknowledging the progress that's been made. So I think over the last couple of years, there's been a really big push to start studying female athletes in specific, both at Stanford through the programs that we are working on, but also across other institutions and across even business partnerships, academic partnerships, coaches, like there's just, as I mentioned before, people are really clamoring for this information. So I think we'll start to see those stats kind of starting to turn over time, which is really exciting. But the big reason that it's so important is because, yes, there is this dire need, there's this gender gap in science. And the challenge is, is that if female athletes aren't being included in studies, it really becomes hard to generalize that science and make it strong and applicable to female athletes. So although we're inching forward and although we're making a lot of progress, I think there's still a lot more progress to be done and still a lot of progress to, as I was mentioning, as it relates to language, as to like how we talk about this and how we talk about it with coaches, parents, athletes, and across all spectrums and all generations. And I think those conversations are exciting, but there's also a lot more work that needs to be done. Yeah. And I think um, it really just, this opportunity through Faster has allowed us to dive in um, at a kind of a deeper level in both the scientific component. So actually doing the research, but then finding a way to really translate it. And so um, just, I guess, maybe to transition to faster and kind of explain a little bit more about that. So faster came from a research initiative through the Wusai Human Performance Alliance, and their focus involved 
um, six different institutions who came together and are doing some great research on health and human performance um, and athletes of all ages. And one of their big pushes is on um, female athlete research. So our program FASTER stands for Female Athlete Science and Translational Research, and it's um, through Stanford. And I pulled Megan on um, really early on as a research lead, and I'm the, the director for that. But Megan's right that there is this, this gap that's tr- trying to be addressed um, through research. And some of the challenges are, you know, studying the female athlete. We need to factor in, um, are they on um, hormonal contraception? What is their hormonal profile at this time? And the challenge in the past is there have been studies on female athletes, but sometimes the approach that they've taken isn't a, is it standardized and it's um, unique for that particular study. So it's hard to maybe understand it in the broader sense. And so there are some, some really good papers even without, within the last year that have really started to create protocols for how do we study a female athlete to take into these beautiful hormones and these fluctuations in hormones um, in a way that we can really take some good, good takeaways for both injury risk reduction and performance and just even from coaching to training um, and even in the medical clinic. Yeah, it seems like the low energy availability problem is kind of the backbone of all of this. So can you talk about what that is? Because people might have heard of like red S, they might have heard or reds, they might have heard of low energy availability, they might have heard of like the male or the female triad, and they're probably like, ah, what is all this stuff? I know it's important, but what is it? Yeah, I can dive into that. And um, it's interesting, we do a lot of education as part of the faster um, platform. So it's it's fun to try to break this down in a way that people can understand it, because it can be really confusing and, and overwhelming. So lower energy availability can occur from a couple of different methods, I guess, or different approaches. So an athlete may be overtraining, they may be underfueling, um, there may be a combination of um, overtraining and underfueling, maybe through an acute increase in training or um, just a change in dietary habits. And this can be completely unintentional, especially with um, younger athletes. I see this more unintentional underfueling happen when they go through transitions, whether it's um, the transitions of I'm going from JV to varsity or from middle school to high school or even high school to college. But I think there can also be some cultural influences to that underfueling that can take an athlete into a more intentional underfueled state. And that's where we really um, run into kind of more longer term problems because of the challenge in reversing that. And the longer an athlete may be under fueling or in this low energy availability state that can lead to suppressions or imbalances of hormones. And that can lead to suppression of certain sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone. And that can over time lead to um, a loss of period or a regular periods or a delayed period in a young athlete. And so those two pieces are parts of the female athlete triad. And the third one, so the low energy availability, the irregular periods. And then the third is how that affects our bone health. So that prolonged suppression can lead to impairments or imbalances in bone remodeling, leading to greater bone breakdown and impaired bone formation. And so over time, especially as athletes, if we're having impaired bone remodeling, that can lead to increased um, risk of bone stress injuries or um, stress fracture, stress reactions. And that's oftentimes when the athlete lands in my clinic is they come in with a stress reaction and they're like, oh yeah, I missed my period for the last few months with my increase in training. And they are in this low energy availability state. And just to kind of go beyond that with um, REDS, so relative energy deficiency in sport is really an expansion of the triad. Um, if you look at the different um, circular models in the, in the REDS diagram, even has, has the female athlete triad as part of that, but it also covers all these other um, potential health and performance consequences that can be from this low energy availability state. 
So um, we really cover both of those topics a lot um, with our education, but we really try to hone in on this low energy availability as that foundation. And so really working on trying to address the why that athlete got there, whether it was um, training or fueling, or even just some, some images about body image and um, the way that they should look in their sport. So I know that's a long-winded um, explanation, but I, I think we're, we all feel really strongly about getting this information out there in a way that's easy to understand and seems like relatable to that, to that athlete. And I like how you phrase that too, as low energy availability as the foundation of all these different processes, because as you can see, Emily, that was such a fantastic example of how low energy availability causes all of these different downstream cascades and different processes. And for every athlete that might be different, like an athlete may present first with a bone stress injury, or they may present first with lots of periods, or they may present first with performance impacts. And I think when you have low energy availability as the foundation, it becomes very clear that there's just so many different processes that low energy availability impacts and talking about it in different ways with different athletes becomes kind of paramount and key because it impacts athletes just across these different spectrums. But I think what we found is that really highlighting that performance component is something that athletes can grasp onto because sometimes an athlete might not be as motivated by injury or some of these other variables. But when you start talking about it in the lens of performance, that it becomes very challenging to have strong performance without feeling the body well. I think that's something that athletes, coaches can really grasp onto in a tangible way. How does this also apply to men? Great question. So. The female athlete triad um, has been around for decades as far as this idea and some of the science behind the female athlete triad. But just recently, um, there have been more papers and even just more um, clinical case cases of, like, for example, in my clinic, of male athletes who present with very similar triad presentation, except instead of impaired um, or regular periods, um, males present with this mouthful of a word, um, hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, which is also suppression of certain sex hormones like testosterone and impaired um, sperm function and development of, of sperm. And I think that that's something that is even more taboo to talk about um, at times with, with athletes is um, that this, there is an equivalent um, presentation in male athletes. And the challenge is also that the fueling and the energy availability state might be a little different as far as what is that threshold to lead to that sex hormone suppression, but the relative energy deficiency in sports does encompass both males and females. So I think this is um, important information that can be taken away as far as fueling and fueling strategies and just this kind of this pressure to fit this, this mold and this look within the, within the sport. So how does suppression of sex hormones affect bone health? It happens. Yeah, that can happen actually over longer periods of time or over shorter periods of time. And what we understand is that when you're not getting in adequate energy availability, it causes perturbations in many, many different hormones, estrogen and testosterone being the base of those. And estrogen is foundational for bone turnover, for bone development, for bone remodeling. It's actually interesting to think about that as we go through lives as athletes, our bones are constantly remodeling and responding to stress and turning over in ways that are productive for bone development and bone growth. And so these hormones are foundational for providing that remodeling stimulus. The other thing too, that we talk about with athletes is that a lot of bone development happens at a young age. So adolescence is a crucial time for peak bone development. And so that's also a common time that athletes might struggle with low energy availability. And so it becomes very important to have these conversations young so that athletes can set that foundation for bone development and for strong bones going forward. But as we talk about it with athletes, we talk a lot about 
things that can build strong bones. So calcium, vitamin D, strength training, strong muscles pull on, on bones and create um, stronger bone foundation. So when we say find your strong, that has applications for both body image and, and bone building as well. Yeah. I was actually wondering why, um, the focus was on seemingly like younger female athletes, but I also wanted to ask about like perimenopausal and menopausal women, because it seems like there's new research emerging and lots of women who are crushing it, you know, into their later years. So how does this apply to these perimenopausal and postmenopausal women? That's a great, great question, Sonia. And I think that like you highlight this, this exciting trend and transition from both the, like the focus on the science, like let's better understand these physiologic changes and not be afraid of them. Menopause shouldn't be a scary word. It should be this word of, okay, we're going to understand it and maybe adapt or change training to really optimize that. And there is, um, there are a lot of hormonal changes and um, sex hormone suppression that's happening. Um, that's interestingly very, very similar um, scenario as far as maybe an athlete who has um, sex hormone suppression through low energy availability, um, just at a different time and maybe at an accelerated at a different pace. And so these athletes, menopausal, perimenopausal athletes do need to, I think, factor in different bone building activities in a different way than maybe a, a kind of premenopausal athlete, just to make sure that they're able to maintain the bones that they have and not maybe go into that low energy availability state, which then could really affect um, specifically, it kind of accelerates that bone breakdown with the bone remodeling process in a way that that could be even more detrimental. But I think that from what I've worked with, with athletes who are kind of going through some of those transitions, kind of more in a one-on-one -on -one basis, not from a coaching, but more clinically, is, is encouraging more um, resistance exercise and strength training, um, discussing other type of weight bearing activity, uh, maybe adjusting or in adding in more recovery time and more just kind of, I guess, not whether rest days or lower intensity days to allow their bodies to kind of fully recover. But I'm curious, Megan, is it kind of wearing the, the hat of a coach as well as um, a scientist and researcher with a medical background? Well, I'm impressed because you're talking about the clinical recommendations and that's exactly what I would recommend as a coach too. The other thing I would add in there too, is just adequate protein intake. So that becomes especially important in those perimenopausal menopausal years to support strong bone development, support strong muscles um, that are again, helping to build those strong bones. And also too, I tend to, for athletes that are doing a lot of run training, that's when I tend to incorporate a little bit more cross training in there as well. And so it's really an individual approach. It sounds very similar actually to the clinical approach an individual coaching approach, but really focusing on those varied movement patterns and, you know, having that multi-directional movement to help support strong bones. So we've talked about how proper fueling is incredibly important for a number of reasons. But I think a lot of people are wondering like, well, what does proper fueling look like so that I can avoid this? And I'm sure that the answer is it depends. And also you mentioned, you know, higher protein needs and seniors especially need more protein as well. So like, what does proper fueling look like? And can you give a couple different examples for some scenarios? That's an amazing question. And one that I get often, I need like an, it depends flashcard um, for this question because you nailed it. It truly does depend. It depends so much on an individual's characteristics, so many different parts about their training, their background, their goals, even genetics. There's just a wide spectrum of things to consider on this topic. What I tell athletes is just empower yourself with like the strongest care team that you can. 
So if you are concerned about this topic, or if you really just want to think about fueling for performance, working with a registered sports dietitian is huge. I've had athletes have big performance gains off of that. And then also health gains too. So I think that's the time when it's really, it's about talking with a care team, but athletes who are not working with a care team, I think it's about erring on the side of caution. I would rather have an athlete be cautious with fuel and just feel their body to feel like they're fueling strong performance. So to be eating enough always, and to just work towards the idea that food can be fun, which I know is not the case for every single athlete, but that's how I frame it with athletes that aren't working with an RD is just thinking about delicious, nutritious meals that are inspiring and just are tasty to have after um, having a big training session. I get a lot of athletes who come in and they're so stressed about micro and macronutrients and this exact ratio of carbs, protein, and fats and, um, or healthy fats or just any fats. And I think that, um, oftentimes what I'm hearing, um, and what I talk to sports dietitians about is especially endurance athletes aren't eating enough carbs for whatever reason, either there, um, there is just this almost cultural pressure to, um, restrict carbs still just through, um, the different fad diets or it's um, kind of integrated within the, the, the team culture to some degree, which is wild to think about because carbs is like, that is our fuel and our energy to get us across the finish line. And also just um, making sure that they're fueling more um, often. So different types of intermittent fasting um, is, is really popular. And um, I really don't encourage, especially our younger athletes to even think about that. I mean, it's, um, they need to be fueling their body consistently and often. And um, that's mul- very like good hearty meals um, throughout the day and um, multiple snacks. And also just making sure that they're packing snacks throughout the day so that they don't get caught um, before a practice or um, after a practice um, without anything. Yeah, I read that you um, specifically address mental health when it comes to when people come in with an injury or they come in with some form of disordered eating. So when you tell an athlete to eat enough, always eat carbohydrates, eat protein, but then they're like, well, I may or may not have access to a sports dietitian, but I want to be light because I'm a cyclist or I'm a runner or whatever. Like, how do you address those kind of conflicting feelings? I really appreciate that you're tying in the idea of mental health, because I think when we talk about low energy availability, when we talk about the female athlete triad and relative energy deficiency in sport, there's a lot of arrows that you can draw to mental health and they're going, they're bi-directional. They're, they're feeding into each other in multiple different ways. And I think for every athlete, again, I'm going to hold up my, it depends slash card. It's so different. Like what is driving low energy availability might be different for every athlete. Like for, as Emily mentioned, sometimes it's totally inadvertent and athletes don't know it, but I think for athletes that are struggling with it, it's about ideally working with a counselor or a therapist to untangle like what are the underlying reasons that they might be more prone to experiencing these thoughts or what are even like some of the cultural reasons within sport. So ideally there's a therapist or a counselor on board. I know that's not possible given access and needs. And I think this is where having productive conversations, if that's not the case with coaches, teammates, fellow athletes, and really just, I hope we're making a cultural shift in sports that people feel open talking about mental health. And we're working to change stigma around the idea of like, there is this ideal body type because in reality, there's so many different body types that excel in sport. And I think that the more we can make that in, in just a natural part of sport in the way that we talk about sport, it will get better. But certainly we need support from mental health counselors as well in that process. Yeah. And I feel like we often, I often see these athletes and they start, they're really strong. Maybe they crushed a, a training block or um, did it, had a really good outcome at a race and they were um, probably at a good energy balance. 
And then all of a sudden it's almost like this desire and they're striving for um, a bit more and a bit more. And they're almost flying closer and closer to the sun and restricting to the point um, that they're falling deeper into this low energy availability state. And sometimes you even see they may have a couple of kind of good workouts and some good, um, some performance, but ultimately, and I I feel like I see it, um, whether it's through training or through an injury or through just a performance drop that like they do, they do crash and it's heartbreaking to see because it's very much preventable. And I think through um, better communications and even role models within the sport, um, some of that can change. And I love um, Kate Courtney just did um, had a great article, or, or I think it may have been a podcast, but like the messaging was, I don't I don't train to be to get skinny, I train um, to be awesome on my bike. And I think that consideration of like using fuel to really power your body through that training, as opposed to using a, a slightly lighter weight to get up the hill a little bit faster, ultimately that's not going to be the most effective way, and it's going to lead to more detrimental outcomes. Yeah. And I think that again, just bringing up that this isn't just about adolescent females, this affects everybody. So what are some earlier symptoms that people can look for? Like before they like lose their period or notice, you know, they're, they're struggling with their sex hormones. Like what, how can you even tell if you're starting to play with that fire? That's a really important question. And something I think that a lot of clinicians, coaches, uh, parents should be on the lookout athletes themselves. Oftentimes what I see first in the coaching world is actually just almost apathy. So not wanting to get out the door, feeling like training and working out is consistently a struggle and just really struggling with that motivation. And certainly that can happen for a wide number of reasons, not just low energy availability. But when that becomes more consistent, I start thinking about low energy availability and some of these struggles. Other things we see, as we mentioned, um, changes in the menstrual cycle, even like blood biomarkers can start to change early. So increased levels of cortisol, perturbations in estrogen, testosterone, other markers that we see are increased rates of injury, not just stress injuries, bone stress injuries, but also musculoskeletal injuries or weird injuries that you're kind of, you can't quite predict as a coach or an athlete. And then the other point would be changes in performance as well. So sometimes that doesn't always happen at first, but sometimes I do see that within the first few weeks of low energy availability. So it's quite, it's quite different by athlete and it usually becomes a unique individual consideration, but certainly the impacts are are broad reaching and that's why it's important to address early. And oftentimes during that same time, Megan, I think you summarized that, that wonderfully, um, you may see these athletes start to disconnect socially a little bit more and, um, kind of back to that apathy component, but, like irritability, whether it's even just beyond within kind of sport and from like an overtrained state, but like just kind of throughout the day and maybe even like it's affecting their work and their, um, some of their other relationships and, um, some other kind of lab values is, and we do see some metabolic suppression too. So um, sometimes the thyroid function can start to decrease and it's often, I'm not always, I mean, we're not getting our thyroid levels checked unless, um, there's other kind of underlying conditions, but we do, sometimes I do see that, um, take an earlier dip and back to like that menstrual irregularity. It could even just be kind of a reduction in um, flow or kind of shorter duration, um, less days. And so that's something to think about, but also like in teenage athletes who are, have a lot of hormones circulating, um, a loss of like, even for men morning erections, or even a loss of like libido and sex drive could also um, be part of that, those signs that an athlete may notice. And what about trans athletes? That's a great question. It's really also, that's also dependent upon a trans athlete situation in terms of their overall hormonal context. But I think 
for all athletes, it's really just about deviations from the norm. So if an athlete all of a sudden experiences some of these symptoms that are different from the norm, that's when we start to have red flags. And I think this is where I, I really take the approach in the coaching world to have athletes kind of keep a little training journal about how they're feeling in life and how they're feeling in training. And I think this is where taking both subjective and objective data from how an athlete is feeling helps quite a bit. And I think that that helps for all athletes. And it's just kind of about taking your detective card and trying to figure out what might be at play there. And it sounds like the care, the care team thing, you guys have mentioned this multiple times, like having like, nobody does this by themselves. So having a care team that you trust is really important. Yeah. Sonia, I was going to mention that too. It's like, I, I feel like having somebody to talk to about these things, whether it's, whether it's that coach, whether it's um, a doctor that can really kind of speak that language is super helpful. And I would say even more so with trans athletes, some, sometimes that the understanding of um, that, that athlete hormonal profile and where they are um, kind of in that as, as an athlete and in, in, in his or her body can be add these extra barriers to finding the right care and the, the right answers and someone just to navigate it. And um, I think we're learning from a lot of different, just a lot of information that it's not just like a, a blanket statement for low energy availability or a different um, training plan. And so we have to take each athlete um, as an individual. And I think that's something that even within our, our research that we're trying to focus on too, that you are an individual athlete, you have your unique body and really embrace that uniqueness. Yeah, I think that's why that education part is so important and what the work you guys are doing with faster is so amazing because that education piece, that's how you know how to say, well, it depends. And there is no blanket statement and just understanding what it is. And then if you might be experiencing this, or, you know, even if you have some of the anxieties that are leading to this, like you said, uh, Megan, it's a bi-directional arrow. So, yeah. And kind of on that point, we did a survey um, during um, kind of a couple of my time frame is all all off, but probably a year and a half ago. And it was looking at um, some of these pride risk factors and mental health symptoms like depression and anxiety symptoms. And we did see that this relationship with higher triad risk factors being associated with um, more um, depression and anxiety symptoms. And so it's something that, I mean, kind of makes sense. Like if an athlete's having some disordered eating behaviors or some restrictive eating habits, they may also have um, some degree of anxiety and depression around that. But even having um, understanding that to provide those right resources, whether it is um, seeing um, a mental health specialist or even just some of the, the information that they um, get access to um, could be super helpful in um, providing the right, the right care and the right answers for them. So I want to switch over to bone health and talk about what are some good exercises that people can do to strengthen bones? Because lots of people listening are cyclists and there's also runners listening, but Cycling is not considered a weight-bearing exercise. I'm so glad you're bringing this up and actually something that Emily and I chat about a lot. And I think cyclists are interested in this information. I think it's becoming a lot more just commonplace to talk about bone building and the importance of that and the importance of bone building to be a lifelong athlete too, and the importance of that longevity as an athlete. For cyclists, I think this is a great time to work in trail running. I think cyclists often excel on the trails because of their natural strength and because of their natural powers. I've seen that with you, Sonia. So I think trail running is great. The eccentric and concentric muscle contractions on uphills and downhills make for strong muscle building stimulus, um, which again helps to support strong bones. 
getting in the gym, not being afraid to lift heavy. I think Kate Courtney, I follow her and she is such a boss in the gym. I'm like, I want to deadlift. I want to squat. I want to bench press exactly like Kate Courtney. And she's a great example of cyclists, just not being afraid to lift heavy in the gym and thinking about that from performance benefits, but also from bone building benefits too. And then certainly protein intake too. So that's kind of my overall approach for cyclists. What if people hate the gym? I mean, there's, I, I feel like I'm a great example of this. I, I don't, if there's one thing to go in a, a training week, if I have a busy week, it's like lifting weights and going to the gym. And I think a lot of people probably express the same sentiments, especially in endurance as endurance athletes. But I realized so much that it's like, I have to prioritize it. There are different ways there's this, so Kate works with uh, Matt Smith at ever athlete and he's a chiropractor and this kind of a strength and conditioning specialist. And he does a lot of more kind of free weight. And so it doesn't require expensive, um, a ton of gym equipment. And I think that that's a good starting point. I also think that like incorporating plyometrics and like different jumping tasks is also super important, whether it's um, little box jumps or kind of step ups and step downs, um, all can be um, really valuable. And it's, it's kind of finding something that's fun that you're actually going to do. Maybe having a buddy that you can, um, that can hold you accountable to it and, and kind of throwing in some great music and doing 15, 30 minutes twice a week. And, and that's, I think, especially like post getting off the bike and even just doing it um, right away. So you don't even I mean, not ideal. You'd probably want to do it on a different day, but just doing something to start to load the bones and help um, kind of build some of that bone mass, especially in the cyclist. I will say I run with Kate Courtney once a week now. So she, she gets out and runs um, a few miles each day. We do some trail running and she is, she's so darn fit. I felt like I finally would be able to like kind of have the, the extra fitness to, to feel strong, but she's still, I mean, she also has her dog. So the, her dog is our, our pace setter, but it, she, she's a great example of, of really kind of bone building from a lot of different um, angles. Yeah. I like that you said it's like 15 to 30 minutes twice a week. It doesn't have to be this massive time commitment. Yeah. yeah. Does band work help with that too? Like resistance bands? Yeah, absolutely. And I think resistance bands help too with I like cyclists to do a lot of mobility through the hips um, and resistance bands can help with that too. So it's kind of twofold. You get the strength gains, you get the mobility through the hips and there's something fun and not as, I don't know, resistance bands to me don't feel quite as daunting. And so it's great as a warm up. And that's the other thing too, is they can be done. I have a lot of runners and cyclists do them just for five minutes pre and post ride. And that's a great way just to keep things building without this overwhelming stimulus and Again, music and strength bands go together well. So throw some Beyonce with some resistance bands and it helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. One other thing I just thought of is if you are a cyclist trying to get into running, doing like a run walk progression, like do not feel ashamed. It, there's there's nothing wrong with doing a run run walk. And you can do a lot, like you can go on a great run that incorporates a minute or two of walking and it feels so much better than trying to run for a sustained period of time. And I think it's also just really enjoyable. And a lot of um, cyclists that I talk to when they go on, on runs, they're like, wow, this was, this is so nice. It's like a, my feet are on the ground. I get to like pull, like look at all this nature and trees that you're flying by usually on the bicycle. Yeah. Running dosage is very potent. Yes. I feel like cyclists who get into running sometimes, and actually all athletes who get into running, sometimes you forget how sore you are at first. Like the, the soreness from running is just so different and unique from the ground contact, but I promise it gets better. And 
what I tell cyclists is there's a lot of like aerobic engine potential there. So it's kind of fun to think about the crossover benefit and just the potential for cyclists to be strong runners and vice versa too, for runners to be strong cyclists. And I think there's a lot of crossover benefit from both. And it's fun to see athletes kind of dabbling in both and also excelling in both worlds too. Yeah, I can attest to that. I was running, um, I stopped in pregnancy cause it was just hurting too much, but yeah, I was working with you guys and I was running three or four trail running three or four days a week. And that made me stronger on my bike. And I was actually su- really surprised to see how much extra torque I had on my bike from the trail running. You were crushing. I got excited. Every time I saw a trail running video of you, I got really excited, but you have been my longtime bike inspiration. So I think the other cool thing about incorporating biking as a runner or running as a biker is that there's also, I feel like that like neuromuscular development. So for me, mountain biking is way scarier and way harder than trail running. And so it's, I I think for me, it's if I can get out on the mountain bike and then I go trail run, it feels way easier in comparison. So I think there's a lot of cross benefits too, and just like developing those technical skills and seeing them apply to both sports. I actually wanted to ask about mountain biking being a weight bearing sport. Cause there, there is like lots of jostling, bumping G forces, things like that. So is that a little bit better for your bones? You know, I, I feel like the research on it, there is, there are a couple of studies. I'd have to go back and look at the quality and the design of those studies, as far as mountain biking for bone mineral density and kind of building bone, bone mass. I would say overall, I feel like the older mountain bikes were probably better because they had less shock absorption. <laughs> and you're just like bouncing on everything and like feeling it all. But even with these, like the newer, uh, more cush mountain bikes that, that I ride on, I feel like I get more kind of muscle strength from that as far as just like, I feel it in my glutes more. I feel it in my quads in a different way than I ride um, a road bike. So I'd say it's probably better than like a road ride, but I would still say like, you need some weight bearing, probably you need to get off the saddle and get out of the saddle to do some, some other um, activities to build the bones. But for those people that are very religious to their, their bicycles, I I would say that getting on the mountain bike would be a fun, fun way to, to add a little bit more perturbation into the, into the bones. Emily, I'm thinking we should do a study that looks at the difference between road cycling, mountain biking, and cyclocross, because I feel like cyclocross might actually even build bones a little bit more, just given jumping off and on the bike, which is seemingly, I don't know how people do that. I don't know how people do that so fast and so well. So I feel like there could be a really interesting bone building study there. And thank you. I feel like we're, we're generating notes from this podcast already on research studies. They jump on and off the bike with lots of practice, getting your crotch rocked over, worked over. <laughs> I've made that mistake before. It's yeah, not pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also wanted to ask about supplements. So we've, you've, I heard calcium and vitamin D mentioned, um, but how does something like iron affect bone health? Yeah, I think, um, so it's so interesting. There was a good article probably like six or seven years ago now looking at like the, um, the interplay between iron deficiency and, and bone health. And there has been some research on how um, it affects growth hormone and, um, other kind of like, I think insulin growth factor and even like thyroid function, but as far as it directly relating to sex hormones there, we haven't found any really concrete relationships. There have been some like rat or animal studies um, that look, looked at this. However, I feel like I've noticed whether it's even just iron deficiency leading to a, a more fatigable state and then loading the body in a different way, as far as a runner who's who's training super fatigued. And so they're landing differently and um, potentially even putting more load into, into the bones. I do see that oftentimes with my bone stress injuries, there could be an iron deficiency or an iron deficiency anemia at play too. 
And there could also be just um, that underfueling that's contributing to that iron deficiency. So it's a little complicated as far as why that's happening. And also complicating this is I feel like runners, even more than other athletes through just um, maybe the kind of low level um, inflammatory state, um, have challenges in absorbing iron in a way that other athletes don't have challenges. So I often see lower levels and try not try to have them supplement through their diet alone, but sometimes do have to recommend an iron supplement on top of that. Emily, you described that so well. And I think to make it even more complicated too, the other thing about iron is that oftentimes when I see a panel and an athlete may be iron deficient, I have the inclination that something else might be abnormal on the panel as well. And that gets at the idea that all of these different processes are interrelated too. And so if an athlete comes to me with iron deficiency anemia, usually it's like, okay, well, let's, what's vitamin B12 levels? What's vitamin D? What are, you know, what are their thyroid levels, as you mentioned, Emily? And so it's about also just doing that deep dive and investigation and all of those different processes impact bones and overall physiology. Well, the listeners can say goodbye uh, to Emily because she has to hop off, but Megan's going to stay for a little bit longer to field all of my questions here. Well, not all, but hopefully some, but Emily, thanks so much for coming on the show and where can people find you? Thank you so much, Sonia. So um, they can find me probably the easiest um, just through our, our web new website, faster.stanford.edu. Also have um, social media, but um, our Instagram is fun. It has um, a nice fuel up Friday. Um, I know this will get probably um, posted at a different time, but we have a really great um, recipe that you should check out um, every Friday. And this one we're particularly excited about. Food. I love and food. Emily, <laughs> yes, food. Emily is a boss. She's off to do a, re- a presentation for a research team. She's our fearless leader. So just really grateful before you go, Emily, just so grateful for your mentorship. Yes. Sorry, for for you. <laughs> and Megan, you're in good hands with the boss. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. So I want to talk about age because we said earlier, like you build most of your bones when you're an adolescent, but then we're saying, you know, even as you age, you can still build bone density. Is there a time where you stop building bone density? That not necessarily stop building bone density. So bones are constantly always turning over. And I've seen, I've worked with athletes who might be in their thirties and forties and are dealing with osteoporosis and osteopenia. And they have through a lot of work through strength training, through protein, through all of these different components, through proper eating, they have worked to restore their bone mass. And so certainly like if you are an athlete dealing with osteoporosis, osteopenia, there's a lot of hope in terms of, you know, taking those measures to, to work and improve your bone density. So certainly while bone density is important in the adolescent years, there's a lot of things that you can do to improve bone density. We just largely say the adolescent years are that peak bone mass building time that really helps set that trajectory in motion. Do you think that most people should go get a DEXA scan to see what their bone density is? I don't think necessarily. So I think when we we start thinking about DEXA scans, if an athlete is presenting with a stress fracture, presenting with multiple repeat stress fractures, especially not every stress fracture is created equal to. So certain stress fractures might be higher risk for low bone density. So stress fractures in the pelvis, stress fractures in the spine, or certain more hormonal sensitive areas might indicate that bone mineral density is a little bit lower. So it really depends on the conversation between an athlete and their care team when they're dealing with stress fractures. Other situations that we would think about DEXA scans are if an athlete has a significant family history 
of low bone mineral density. So we know that genetics account for anywhere between 50 to 80% of overall bone mineral density, which is substantial when you think about that. And certainly we can modify, you know, those overall genetic risk factors through what we're, through how we're treating our bodies. But if you think about it in that way, that's a pretty substantial more portion. So athletes with stress fractures, athletes with family history, and then also athletes that have had a clinical eating disorder or disordered eating for a period of time, it might be helpful to understand how the bones are trending and how they're looking. Yeah, that was actually something I was going to ask you about because you've done some research focus on genetic predictors of sports injury. How can people even know, you know, aside from just asking about family history, if they have these genetic predictors? There are some newer clinical tests out there. Um, I did some consulting for a company that called Axgen that actually does, you can very similar to 23andMe, you can spit in a test tube and send it out and they'll tell you your genetic predictors um, or your genetic risk for bone mineral density. And the bone mineral density is actually quite strong. So that's based off of 200,000 different spots in your genome. So it's incorporating a lot of genetic information into that overall algorithm that spits out that result. But I think increasingly there'll be a lot more conversations about working genetics into the clinical world, because if you could spit into a test tube and you don't have to go get a DEXA scan, I think it really helps kind of sort out and clarify who might be at higher risk. But certainly there's places that you can check. I expect that, you know, maybe like 23andMe and some of these other genetic companies down the road will start to incorporate it as well. So there's kind of one little area that I want to add in at the end here. I was thinking about like low energy availability, and overtraining cuz like you can you can be overtrained without having low energy availability so like what are the main differences here and i guess just like what comments do you have on that this is a fantastic point to bring up so increasingly more and more we're starting to look at the connection between overtraining and low energy availability that a lot of cases of what we call overtraining in sport which overtraining in sport is something that we need a lot more research on it's very challenging to research overtraining because you can't just like clinically induce that in someone. It's something that it's something that is a little bit more challenging to study. But from what we're understanding now on the more limited research that we have is there are these connections between underfueling and overtraining. And perhaps a lot of the causes of overtraining are just actually underfueling at that training level. And specifically, Emily brought up earlier the importance of carbohydrates, specifically carbohydrates. So we're thinking more and more that low carbohydrate intake might actually predispose athletes to overtraining. And of course, this is so dependent upon an athlete's, you know, how quickly are they ramping up training? How much training volume are they doing per week? What does that look like? But certainly there's, again, I talk about bidirectional arrows a lot. There's a lot of bidirectional arrows between those. And I think we're just learning to untangle that more and more in research. Yeah. It was funny back in the day I wanted to do a PhD and I thought I want to do a PhD in overtraining and I would go to different labs and the, like the lab, you know, PhDs there would be like, yeah, that's a, too broad of a topic, too hard to research. And I was like, that would just be the best thing ever to do a PhD in. Cause everybody struggles with this. It is an excited athlete. We need to, there's still time. I think you should do it. <laughs> I think the challenging thing is it's, one of those, it's, it's almost at this point, a diagnosis of exclusion. So athletes are dealing with all of these different symptoms and you go to a doctor and you get checked off for a number of different other disease processes or disorders. And so it becomes more of a diagnosis of exclusion. So it's very, very challenging to diagnose, which is one of the, the, the challenges with it. But also too, when you study it, it's just hard to recruit people who are overtrained and hard to, how do you recruit athletes who are overtrained? How do you have this criteria for defining who are overtrained, are they still continuing to train as you're studying? So there's just, there's so many different, and I think this is actually why it makes for a great research project is because 
you have to answer and define all of those inclusion and exclusion criteria in a way that I think would just really bolster our research process. Yeah. And probably just all the elements. There's so many variables. Like I feel like overtraining is an umbrella. And then there's just so many different things that go underneath that umbrella that can affect this word that we're calling overtraining. And it probably would just even change that word. It would. And actually it's funny because it's so similar to when we talk about low energy availability and then like all the different cascading processes that are involved with low energy availability. It's so similar to overtraining. And that's why I think you you start to think about like the relationships between low energy availability and overtraining. But I have seen some of the weirdest symptoms in athletes who have had overtraining syndrome. And I think once you start seeing them repetitively, you realize that perhaps we don't even understand the full reachings of how overtraining impacts even like the neuromuscular system or, you know, the MSK system, musculoskeletal system, um, or the endocrine system. And like, what are the connections to between all of those systems as well? Yeah. And I also just had a point I wanted to make earlier, and it was about like, athletes comparing themselves to other athletes and what you think someone should look like. Like I remember when I was a new cyclist, I would look at other pro professional women and think, well, I should look like them. And if I don't look like them, then I'm not like it's imposter syndrome at at, like a body image level. But also like, if you look at female marathon runners, like, Oh, if I don't look like them, then I'm not a real runner. And I had this runner on the podcast. Have you heard of Fiona Oaks? Yes. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And she says, I'm not talented. Like she always says that. So I asked her like, well, why do you think you're not talented? Like you've done a 238 marathon. You've set four Guinness book of world records. Like you've done all these amazing things. And she said, because I don't look like the other runners. So she thinks she's not talented because she doesn't have like the same body type as the other runners. So there's, there's so much involved with body image and how it impacts us, like from whether we think we're talented or what we eat. And I think just highlighting more bodies and showing more bodies doing amazing things. And that it's just, it's your body is your body and everybody's body weight to perform is going to be a different body weight to perform. Everybody's needs are going to be different, but it's just so hard because the media will put out, you know, these are the most amazing women or men or whatever who are doing these things. And then you think, well, I have to look like that. Otherwise I'm not that. And it's just not the case. There's thank you for highlighting that. I think there's so much that's involved in, I think, we're seeing now that athletes can perform at so many different body types and those body types are probably ideal for that athlete themselves. But I think it can be challenging as an athlete to conceptualize that if you feel like it's not the norm. And there are these like different norms that I think we're working to push against in certain sports. But I think this also gets back, it's very similar to bone density, where I think we all have a genetic predisposition to a certain type of of body. And that's a beautiful thing. Like we are humans to be different. And I think embracing those differences and understanding that they come from a genetic standpoint is valuable because if we try to fight our genetic predisposition, that just causes all of these risks for low energy availability, for poor performance, for just challenging like the natural state of what we're supposed to be. So I think it's important that we just celebrate the fact that yes, we're different. Like that's the part that makes us fundamentally human. But at the same point in time too, it's like we can perform at different body types and just continuing to highlight them. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This is actually your second time on the podcast. So people can go listen to the one that I recorded with you and David, which is really fun. And people should definitely check out the SWAT podcast too, because it's a a one that I listen to every single week. Thank you so much. I was, I've been pumped. Um, this has been circled on our calendar for a long time. And I know you're coming up on pregnancy as uh, on your due date as we record this. And I'm just in awe of everything you've done as an athlete and everything you've done through pregnancy and just how you've uplifted female athletes in that process. And so I feel like it's so fitting to talk about this conversation with you. So thank you for elevating the field too. 
Thanks. You're always so amazing at acknowledgements. I noticed that you like that's one one of the many ways you lift other people up is with these very detailed, specific acknowledgements instead of just saying you're awesome. Like you have these very detailed acknowledgements, and that really helps people feel really good about themselves. So thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I mean, I follow you. This comes from I almost feel like a soccer in some sense because I followed all of your mountain biking skills. Mm-hmm. I've now followed your journey through pregnancy and uh, beyond, and so I just I feel like it's coming. I have all these detailed notes on you because I just love following your journey. So that's where it's coming from. (laughs) I'm actually going to throw in one little thing for the listeners is that um, we didn't talk about breastfeeding and low energy availability. And I actually think that I had low energy availability for probably eight months during breastfeeding. And I I had to eat like 4,000 calories a day plus in order to, and I was in this hole forever. So yeah. And I still didn't even know what was going on. So I actually think that I was having some sort of low energy availability problem. I appreciate you bringing that up because hundred percent athletes who are breastfeeding have wildly different dietary needs and those are wildly increased. And so I think that's actually a great time to meet with a a registered dietitian because there's also so many nuances too, in terms of vitamins and minerals and what you're taking in. And I think also just eating a ton during that period of time helps a lot because the body, I mean, we talked about in the beginning that female athlete physiology is cool. Athletes who are breastfeeding and training at the same time, like think about all that you're doing in life. And like, that's a lot, that's a lot of energy that's required. All right. So that was a little nugget I threw in at the end, but where can people find you specifically if they want to follow your journey? Cause you're freaking awesome. And people need to like, aside from all of the, what you guys call sexy science on your podcast, <laughs> like all of the amazing running things that you're doing and coaching and just, you're just a general inspirational figure. So where can people find you? Oh, thank you. Uh, Megrin's happy. is my Instagram handle. There's a lot of mountains, pictures of mountains on there, food, dogs, uh, all kinds of things. <laughs> also Stanford faster, which Emily referenced earlier. It's our awesome research program. And we have great uh, clinical research coordinators, Abby and Ellie, who are helping us launch that. And then swap running is just where I do a lot of my coaching and researching with my husband, David. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. This was so fun. Thanks for making my day. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon and PayPal. Those donations do not go unnoticed every single month. And when I was doing my taxes last month, I realized, wow, podcasting is really expensive. And so I'm really grateful for our podcast sponsors and for the Patreon and PayPal donations that you guys have been submitting. If you want to see more mountain bike content, don't forget to go to my Instagram. That is at Sonia Looney. And occasionally I will post some of this mindset and plant-based nutrition content there as well. And I also share a weekly video giving you a one minute snippet into the guests of the podcast. And you can find me at Sonia Looney at Sonia Looney on Instagram. Thank you so much for being here. I know there are literally thousands and thousands of podcasts you can listen to. And so many of them are incredible. So the fact that you're listening means the world to me. It means the world to my team. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week.